Welcome to Charting the Course, a podcast from Full Sail Capital. We're a registered investment advisory firm committed to helping clients grow and manage generational wealth. We do this by focusing on integrity, competency, and transparency each and every day. No matter where you find yourself on the investing journey, our hope is that these conversations, stories, and interviews can empower and equip all investors with fresh insight and perspective on the capital markets. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Our guest today is Aaron Ackerman, a CPA and a partner at Hogan Taylor right here in Oklahoma City. He leads the firm's financial management services practice, and that includes everything from fractional CFO to transactional advisory, all the way down to client accounting. He has more than 20 years of experience on both the public and private side of the business. He's served clients in a wide variety of entities, including nonprofits, manufacturing, construction, really you name it. And what you'll gather listening to this conversation is just the depth of knowledge that he has for his space and the, really the care he has for each client that he works with. So I really think you'll enjoy today's conversation. As always, we alluded to a couple resources during our conversation. So I've included those in the show notes here on the podcast. So you can, you can go there and uh, see the book we've talked about, see the website, see their podcast that they do. So anyway, hope you all enjoy. Have a wonderful rest of the week. We'll talk soon. David and Aaron, it is great to be with you both down here in studio. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. So let's just jump right in here. David, I'm going to have you introduce our guests. So I'll kick it right over to you and we'll get started. Aaron, thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks. Thrilled you're here. Aaron and I met in the wonderful thin air of Chama, New Mexico. I'll never forget it. Yes, I loved it. I loved it. I was telling him when I came back from that trip, my wife said, well, who did you meet on your trip and, and what do they do? And I said, I met this incredible man. He's just a great <laughs> man. I said, guess what industry he's in? Just guess. She didn't guess CPA. <laughs> she didn't guess that. Yeah. No, well, you know, nobody <laughs> grows up thinking I want to be a CPA when I get older. So, <laughs> Man, you are just so engaging and so inviting. And then you take 10 minutes to listen to you and you're just brilliant. Well... I, uh, you've met my mom, obviously. So thank you for that. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, kind of tell us, we wanted to walk through with you. You're an M&A expert. We wanted to walk through with you kind of what, what does day to day look like for an Aaron Ackerman? And what does it look like for the advice that he brings to bear for his clients that own their own business that are entrepreneurs? Yeah. So it was, you know, it's kind of been an evolution. So I came to Hogan Taylor about eight years ago. Prior to that, I was, uh, controller and a CFO at some companies that, you know, we would all recognize here in Oklahoma City. So went through, you know, some transactions in the corporate finance office, right? So bought some stuff, sold some stuff. That was kind of my background. But um, at Hogan Taylor, we really, we launched, you know, a full scale transaction advisory practice. And really the way it started was, you know, working with our clients of the firm, a lot of them tax clients, that own a business, family owned businesses, you know, that were sellers. And so mm. a lot of times we were working on the sell side with somebody that may be going through this one time in their life, right? Right. It's a big deal for a, for a family or a business owner. It can be really emotional. And so we, we found pretty quickly that we could bring a lot of value to that process, especially for somebody that's going through it, you know, one time. And one of the things we can do is we're not emotional, right? You know, we don't have the blood, sweat and tears that you do. We honor that, but we can 
we can be a little more objective about expectations, what the process is going to be like, how much your business is worth, right? You know, all of those things. It's great to have an outside person with a little less heart tied to the, you know, where you started in your garage and everything. That dose of reality too, to some people. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other part of that is, especially if someone's had the, you know, success to grow their business to where it's a 20, 30, 40, $50 million business. The buyer, a lot of times, is going to have a really sophisticated firm, maybe a big four accounting firm, a big law firm come in to do diligence. And so we can bring a lot of professionalism and experience to that process. Because I always tell sellers, once you sign an LOI, the price, the value only goes one direction from that point on. And it's always down. Right. And so we want to, when we're working on the sell side, like our goal and mission in working with our client is to preserve that value. And so if we can bring, you know, whether it's tax, accounting, like, you know, business expertise, just the knowledge of how the process goes, we can help preserve that value because a family owned business that's operated really successfully for a long time, you got 10 Deloitte guys coming in, that can be overwhelming. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Back up a little bit. What you said was really interesting. So explain in a little more depth what happens in an LOI and why it actually causes that value to decline after it's executed. Yeah. So an LOI gets signed pretty early on. A buyer will do some minimal due diligence and believe that there's enough commonality here that they want to to buy the business. So an LOI, it's non-binding. It just is basically a good faith agreement that we've got a buyer and a seller that both want to engage in this process and they come up with a valuation, which is subject to change once they go through and do their due diligence. And so we kind of have a couple of principles. We always tell a seller two things. The uh, valuation only goes one direction and nothing good happens with the passage of time. Mm. And so that's why, you know, we like to get people thinking about selling their business before they want to sell their business. Right. Because sometimes we get a call and, you know, someone's like ready to stick a for sale sign in the yard. They want out and they haven't really thought about it until now. Well, that typically, I mean, you can kind of get lucky maybe, but typically that's, that's not going to be a real favorable process. No. So talk about that a little more in depth. What does that look like? What stage of the business are we in? And what do you do to help people structure themselves internally before they stick that for sale sign? I was even going to add, what, yeah, when should a potential client call you? Yeah. Like ideally. Now, of course, it's never going to happen that way. It, it might, but but ideally, somebody that you even have a discussion on and you start realizing there's probably a liquidity event at some point. Yep. What's that process look like to David's, to yeah. David's point? So my real answer is it's never too early. Sure. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But, okay. you know, ideally, we would want to start at least thinking through making some plans with somebody a couple of years ahead of an event. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. (laughs) Normally, you know, it's not uncommon for us to, to get pulled in six to 12 months. That's really not enough time. You can make a lot of good plans to get yourself ready in that period of time, but that's not enough time. But the reason why I say it's never too early is because anything we would try to, to do with a client to help them prepare for a sale is a good business decision. Okay. It's like, it's going to help your business, whether you sell your business or not. We want to improve the bottom line. We want to streamline processes. We want to, you know, get rid of 
things that aren't moving the needle. We want to do reduce customer concentration. Like all of those things make you a more profitable business. Sure. And make you a you know higher valuation in a sale process. So so it's never too early because you can always improve the business that's gonna put more money in your pocket, allow you to do more things, invest more, whatever. So that's a big deal. Two years, you know, that's a really good amount of time. The other thing we tell people is every business changes hands at some point. Right. Because if someone says, Hey, I'm not looking to sell, I'm I'm never gonna sell every like whether you're talking about the lemonade stand on the corner or Walmart, every single business changes hands, usually multiple times. You can control the process or you can just let it happen. Mm-hmm. You know? Right. And that might be it changes hands to the next generation. Sure. It doesn't have to be a third-party person, but you, if you're the owner, are not going to own the business forever. It's going to change hands. That's a certainty. And I think that's so hard to get some people to get their mind around. Go no, it's not. I'm gonna live forever. <laughs> Part of your roles, or one of the things that that we talked about before we started recording, is is you and your company will serve in a fractional CFO capacity. How does that play into the transactional advisory world? Where you guys, to me, that sounds like you get brought in, kind of help clean up, kind of help position the company to sell. Is that how that looks? And is it always a fractional CFO role prior to a sell? Or sometimes it's just, we can come in, operate as a CFO until you can hire somebody. Like, let's look at that role a little bit, because I think that's yeah. interesting. So it's all of the above. Yeah. I mean, we, um, we've we got clients where we're in a fractional controller or CFO role, and we've been there for eight years. Okay. You know, even like nonprofits, it's like, that's just the model that they've adopted for their business. And we do a lot of that. Okay. Where it's around a transaction and we, we do it on the buy or the sell side, but a lot of times somebody's starting to think, okay, I'm two, three years away. We want to get, you know, somebody in to help us really kind of professionalize the back office. We're great at operations. And I always tell clients like, I don't know your business better than you do. I won't act like I do. I'm not going to try to tell you how to operate. Right. But we can help you in the back office. And so a lot of times we do come in a couple years ahead in that fractional CFO role and start streamlining, trying to see what we can do to, uh, uh, you know, reduce the cost structure, whatever it is, right, to get prepared for that sell. We also know, because we're on the buy side too a lot of times, okay. we know what buyers are going to look at, what's important to them. And I'll give you an example. So we had, this was early on, a pretty small deal. It was, I think they brought us in before they were looking to sell. Uh, well, they knew they were going to sell, but they didn't have an LOI. They said, hey, we're going to start marketing, but we want you to come in and help us. We said, okay, great. So we come in and we go, look, we need to do what I kind of call pre-due diligence. We know what the buyer eventually is going to look at. So let's look at that before they do, because they'd never had an audit, never had a review, had a, a bookkeeper for 20 years that was really good at you know processing transactions. Sure. They had didn't really have a CFO right. strategic look at that. He goes, okay, well, what do you think we need to do? And I said, well, inventory is a big part of your business. When I was an auditor at EY, right out of college, all the way until now, the biggest problem I ever see, it's always inventory. It is. It's a big number on the balance sheet yeah. and it's, it's hard to account for. Yeah. I mean, everybody can reconcile a bank statement. They know what their cash is. AR is pretty easy. Yep. Inventory is pretty hard. And so I said to this owner, and they ha- and uh, I said, well, we probably need to look at inventory. And they already had a valuation, so they thought they were going to get 4 or $5 million for their business. And uh, they said, well, what's that going to cost if we do like this full-blown inventory audit? I said, I can't remember. It was years ago, but I was like $15,000. And they were like, oh, that's, that's a lot. So they didn't do it. 
Wow. And so they get, we get an LOI buyer comes in. It was, I think four and a half million dollar LOI. They start on due diligence and pretty quickly they discover inventory is all messed up. So they ended up selling that business for 1.8. Oh, oh man. Because brutal, you know, there, once diligence starts, once you get a couple drops of blood in the water, it can become a feeding yep. frenzy. And yep. so I always tell that story as kind of a cautionary tale because even if you spend a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars, like everything you can do to make due diligence smooth and fast, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. There's an ROI mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. Wow. I tell people that all the time, even with legal work. I always, they're always so consumed when they're doing estate planning, even what it's going to cost, and 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 I go. Do you want it done well or do you want it done cheaply? Yeah. If it's done cheaply, it will only be done cheaply until you die. After you die, there's going to have to be some work repairing and or using some more techniques that you didn't employ while you were alive and you could have done. It'll cost way more. Yeah. Way more. And it, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Money well spent. I don't know why people balk at that. So, you know, probably, you know, more than five years ago, we were always trying to sell our sellers on pre-due diligence. Like let us come in and run a due diligence process, mm. do quality of earnings yeah. for you. And that way, once you get a buyer, you've got your data room set up, you know what everything has been tied down. You can hand them a quality of earnings report and it's going to go really smooth. That was a hard sell several years ago, but now th- there's a lot of momentum around it. Investment banks, and M&A advisors that on the sell side are basically requiring their clients to do that. So I'm glad because I think, you know, it's all about preservation of value. So when you're talking about letter of intent, LOI, just to glorify a paper handshake, right? Yep. Well, boy, does it set the terms after that for a final purchase agreement to come into place. And I don't know about you, do you see people mentally moving into I'm selling after that, and if the negotiations get hard like it did with this client, I'm going from 4.5 to 1.8. Well, at least I'm gonna, I've, I'm, I've already mentally moved into getting a, a multi-million dollar deal for my company. I'm, I'm going to sell. Yeah, you do. You kind of get ingrained into that process. And part of that is because nearly every LOI has an exclusivity period where once you sign that LOI, you're no longer talking to any other potential buyers. Mm. And so if that goes on for 45 days, 60 days, 90 days, that's a lot of time. Yeah. And so you really get sort of committed to, to that buyer and that process and you want to make it work because you don't necessarily want to go start all over. Go back to market. Yeah. Sure. It's like putting that sell pending on a real estate sign out front. It's like, well, that one's... It, yeah. Most of the people just mentally start passing on it because they think it's already under, you right. know, it's under contract. It's, now, there's good reasons for from sellers and buyers sure. to walk away from sure. an LOI, like if it just turns out to not be the right deal. And the other thing, you know, we, saw, we talk a lot about money and valuation and everything, but, you know, you depending on your business, it's your legacy. Like, do you want it, like, scrapped and sold for parts, or are you looking for somebody who's going to love it and grow it like you have? You know, those things are important too. And the pe- the people involved, I think every single person we've talked to that's gone through something like this, the valuation is important. Sure. It can be a generational, you know, life-changing event, but they want to make sure their people are taken care of. Yeah. And so I just be curious how those conversations come up when you're advising. Well, so, you know, it's easy to assume, you know, what is motivating 
a seller, but you, you can't really know that. Like if you assume yeah. you're going to probably be wrong because you might think every seller wants to maximize their money in their pocket walking away. That's the goal of this transaction. And they may not care that much about that. They might say, I've employed 50 people in my hometown for the last 50 years. And that is more important than a bottom line. I like, we have had years we break even, but I don't fire anybody or we lose money. I right. I've got these people, like we go to school with them and church with them. And that's the most important thing to me. Right. I don't care how much money I get at the end of the day. So having those conversations where, um, you really understand like, what is your motivation? Why are you selling? What's your goal? And then you can gear yeah. the process towards that to achieve those goals. So good. So what are you seeing right now in the, in the space here in the, in Oklahoma and this, the heartland of America, I'm sure you guys operate all over, but just in this region are, are is M and a activity slowed down? Is it with rates coming up? Is it still steady? What are you seeing? A couple of things. I, it's steady. There's lots of articles and lots of opinions about where kind of the M&A market is going. And when you talk about the M&A market, I mean, you're talking about a sale of a lifestyle company that may be worth a few million bucks all the way to the, the public markets, right? Right. So th there's definitely a slowdown in uh, kind of the middle to upper part of the market. And it's not that deals aren't getting done. They're just taking a little bit longer. Right. Okay. People are being a little more careful, taking a little extra diligence. We're still at a near record high in the U.S. of dry powder at private equity funds. Right. You know, coming out of COVID, there was, there was $1.6 trillion of PE dry powder. Today, there's $1.4 trillion. So Amazing. there's a lot of deals that need to get done because get paid to sit, on that, to sit on that money, yeah. right? So they're going to want to get deals done. They're going to be a little pickier about quality. So a couple of years ago, like you could sell a mediocre quality company for a pretty good multiple. I think that's going to get a little tighter right now. Wow. As far as Oklahoma City goes, so we our practice has sort of expanded. It's really more of a national practice. We're doing a lot of venture capital work in Oklahoma City, but most of our transactions right now are not in our markets. Really? Yeah. Wow. Hmm. That's been driven really by the buy side. We kind of work equally on the sell and the buy. We're mostly on the buy side right now at the moment. Okay. Um, and so there's a lot of strategies being employed right now where somebody identifies like a segment. So they're, they're looking at a hard trend. It may be predictable cash flow in a very fragmented industry where they can go and roll up a bunch of companies. This is a buyer buy. giving you some criteria. Yeah. And so we're not creating deal flow. We're not out finding these. We're not brokering these deals. We get brought in usually after there's a letter of okay. intent okay. to do all of the financial diligence, tax diligence. That's where most of our effort is on the buy side. It's a big difference because there is a, a lot that goes on on the brokering side yeah. and trying to put deals together where to, I we, was going to ask yeah, you that. We've done that a little yeah. bit, but we're, you know, we're not an investment bank. That's not our strength. Okay. We kind of stay out of that lane. We have a lot of good friends of the firm that Partners. play in that space. Okay. And so we can kind of be matchmaker there and okay. find a good fit. But yeah, so like right now we're seeing a lot of consolidation in healthcare, a lot of consolidation in logistics, wow. a lot of consolidation in, you know, kind of industrials. Like we've We've got a really awesome client right now who's closing deals pretty rapidly in the uh, like HVAC space. Okay, and that's a great strategy right now because it's a little bit de-risked. Like once you have a platform, right, you understand that business, then buying and bolting on is less risky than trying to go find something sure. new. Yeah, and even the the private equities are doing that as well. Like they're going to be, they've already signaled where they're more inclined to just do 
roll-ups, add-ons in this market, like that 1.4 trillion, a lot of that's going to be on add-ons instead of building a new platform company. David kind of alluded to this in his question about just interest rates and the M&A market. In your experience, do you see a tie or any effect from our world just in the capital market? So a year like 2022, like we just had, where, where the stock market has a very rough year, does that affect you guys as much as people may think? Or is it more just certain aspects of the economy that play into it? Not necessarily what the but capital markets just, I think, affects people so much emotionally that I can yep. see a business owner saying, well, pump the brakes or. Yeah. Well, it's, so it certainly has an impact because, you know, commercial debt is part of nearly every capital stack on a transaction, whether it's private equity or, you, you yeah. know, or yeah. a roll up strategy. So it certainly has an impact. It's just math, right? I mean, it's you, you may have to dial down debt a few points and right. dial up equity you know, I keep asking that question to clients like, hey, is this, are the interest rates, how are they going to impact your strategy? And it's anecdotal evidence, but I just keep hearing like, it's not going to slow us down. Yeah. We may have to use a little more uh, equity and a little less debt, but, or we may go more uh, seller financing than bank debt. Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. It's interesting. I just was curious. So. No, it's a great question. I mean, I've, I read everything I can get my hands on because Everyone's got a crystal ball. They're all pretty foggy, but you try to figure out what's going to happen. Same on our side of the table. A lot of crystal exactly. balls out there. Yeah. I just think anecdotal evidence is so, I mean, you call it anecdotal, but boots on the ground, talking to people that are doing it, I trust that. And so, yeah, I, I think everyone can trust this. It's still better than probably you would, just your intuition would tell you with what you're seeing. It always works that way, right? Oh, yeah. It, it, well, everything. I mean, I, my client, you know, we're working with real clients, not yeah. hypothetical clients. And yeah. so if they say, as of right now, like, this is what we're doing, I'm rolling. Then we're going with it. So. I love it. Yeah. Aaron, what would you say is the hardest part of the job or maybe the hardest part of a deal? And then what would you say is maybe the best part of a deal? And it could be, you can, you know, we love stories. So it could be a story about a really hard deal that maybe had a good ending still, but it was just a hard, there's hard conversations. And then what's maybe the most rewarding part of what you do? Uh, we love asking our entrepreneurs that question. So I think it'd be interesting to get your perspective yeah. on it. Well, the the hardest part just in general, and I know David's a big football fan, so I'll use a football analogy. You know, if you, if you get the ball on the 20, getting to the other 20 is pretty easy or even like to the 10, those last five or 10 yards are difficult. And yep. how many times do you see that in football where you're just throwing the ball around, moving down the field, you get down to the five and you can't punch it in. Right, right. That's how deals are. Like, it's pretty easy. Everything goes quick, fast, somewhat easy, about 80%. That last 20% is where you earn your stripes. Um, so th that's the hardest part. Is There's no field goals in, in, the, in the MMA Are you world? making a commentary on OU football from <laughs> last year? It feels like that yeah. for a second. Uh, could be. But, yeah, that that's really the <laughs> hardest part point. is getting down towards the yeah. end and just getting it across the finish line. First yes. time, got to go. Right. Yeah, and that's usually like it's just harder, right? You know, harder, more detail, more hurdles you got to clear. Um, so that's the hardest part. By far the the most rewarding part, especially if you're working on a sell side, is, you know, somebody getting a, a big check that is going to be life-changing for yeah. them and their family. And yeah. that's really fun. Like I, I wish I could say, like when someone says, what do you do? Say, oh, I make millionaires, you know, which I don't really, but. Be a cool business card though. Yeah, it would be. But, you know, that's really fun to see yeah. somebody, you know, whether 
whether it's a validation or just a reward for all the hard work and sacrifice, like that's really, really fun. You know, specific deals. So it's funny about like hard deals. Those end up being the best deals because you learn so much. Like, you know, I've got a couple of deals that I can just come right to my mind where it's like Murphy's Law, like everything that could go wrong did. And so you feel like you got years of experience (laughs) on one deal because you know, everything was, was a challenge. I had one deal that, you know, we, we had to do a, uh, the real estate was part of the transaction. I learned more about phase one and phase two, and I had to go to meetings at the DEA and remediation and drilling release wells, like Holy unbelievable. God. And it was, you know, all because of something that happened 50 years ago where a dry cleaner dumped out a, like a milk jug size container of some chemical. That never goes away. Wow. Yeah. So it's crazy. So those are really hard taxing deals for you and your team. But once you get them done, you're like, man, that was kind of awesome. Like we learned so much, you know. That's great. Yeah. Oh, that's great. David, do you have any yeah, so what's last the, questions? So here? what's the sweet spot for you, bro? What's like the ultimate fairway client for you that you look at and go, okay, this is, we're going to be hitting on all cylinders with this group. Yeah. So I'll, I'll answer that if I could in a couple of ways. So just as far as like deal size, you know, we've worked on deals that are, especially in the venture capital space, deals that are, you know, under a million dollar transaction. I think probably the biggest we've worked on is, you know, half a billion. Wow. Wow. That's a little bit of an outlier. The mo, you know, for the most part, our clients, our deal sizes are going to be between, you know, right around 10, maybe sing, under that a little bit, single digit to 50 or 60 million. It's wow. kind of the sweet spot. Okay. You, you're pretty humble about it, but when you, you you talk about millionaires, you take people's hard work and you make sure it materializes into something tangible for them versus just something on a piece of paper. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is the, the smaller deals a lot of times are actually more challenging because it's too small, right, for like private equity. So you're, right. So it's a strategic deal. And I should have mentioned this earlier, when we're sitting down with a seller, that's one of the first conversations we have to have is what kind of transaction is this going to be? Is it a financial transaction where we're looking at private equity or is this a strategic deal where you're going to try to market to your customer, your competitor, Mm -hmm. somebody who's going to come in and operate? Right. And those are strategic deals are more difficult to get done. But if you're in that, you know, less than $20 million valuation size, you're probably not on really in, in on the PE radar. Okay. And so you're looking more at a strategic deal. So the smaller ones are oftentimes a little harder to get done. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The other part of that answer to that question is on the buy side, like we love what I call serial buyers. So venture capital, private equity, consolidation companies, like I mentioned with the HVAC and healthcare, okay. because they're, they're going to do a volume of deals mm. and we can really get a good process with them where they, they know exactly what to expect. We know exactly what they expect from us and we just do it yeah. kind of rinse and repeat. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. No, those are, that, that's perfect. This has been, I've learned a lot. This I've, has been great information. Yeah, me too. It was, so if people are wanting to get a hold yes. of you, brother, how do they get a hold of you? So our website, um, hogantaylor.com uh, is a great place to start. Lots of information on there. And of course the firm, you know, has traditional CPA services, tax and audit. I run our financial management services and transaction advisory. So that's all on there. Pretty easy to find. You guys have a podcast. 
We do have a podcast called How That Happened. Yeah. That's so, great. And it's awesome. Yeah. And uh, my partner, one of my partners in Tulsa, Robert Wagner, who actually is kind of the founder of our practice, he co-hosts that with me, the yeah. podcast. And he's also really active in our fractional CFO and, and transaction advisory. An author in his own right. He is. Yeah. He's got a, a book that he put together called 55 Questions to Ask Before You Sell Your Business. And it's a super handy little book. I give it away all the time because uh, he probably doesn't want me to give it away, but <laughs> it's just such a good primer, um, especially for like a first time seller. Yeah. So it, it's really cool. It, it just kind of goes through all the things to think about ahead of time to increase the value of your business. Well, you brought us a couple of copies, so we'll have some here at the office. We'll also put a link in our, in our show notes uh, to the book, to your website. Yeah. Aaron, I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. David, appreciate you. Yes. Setting this up. So Aaron, you're a good man, man. Yeah, thanks. This is a blast. Boy, I appreciate you, you it. You are a good man. It's not often you find somebody that has personality and is incredibly brilliant all at the same time. Most of you guys are weird. You're really cool. <laughs> I love you. Yep. And and we're neighbors. We're, we're both <laughs> we down, are just down the street. So. Yeah. I love it's awesome. It. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation, don't forget to review and subscribe to your preferred podcast platform. Have a great week. All opinions expressed by the host and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Full Sail Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Full Sail may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.